welcome to Dark Materials. I'm Faye. Hi. And I'm Rachel. Hello. This is usually a podcast where we're reading through and discussing Philip Pullman's His Dark Materials novels a chapter at a time, spoiler free. But in these special bonus episodes, we are talking about the His Dark Materials TV series on BBC and HBO. Beware, these episodes are not spoiler free and will contain spoilers for the original HGM trilogy. So if you haven't read them all, pop back when you're all caught up. This week we're discussing Season 3, Episode 4, Lyra and Her Death. And we're here to cry. Yes. Welcome to the Sad Girls podcast for sad girls who want to cry about nerd stuff. Yes. Oh, yeah. I think that should be the new tagline for our podcast because yes. the books are getting increasingly more sad, as is the TV show. I am getting increasingly more sad. <laughs> it's January. <laughs> yeah, it's January. I'm increasingly more sad. I hate this month. It's the worst. Yes. We are choosing to spend the second day of this new year crying. <laughs> Yes, we are recording a little bit in advance, but we're just trying to get it all out of the way so we can just like, we know there's some really sad So we can get on with up. our lives. <laughs> so I can not be crying about this fucking show all the time. All the time. I don't know why I've done this to myself. Sat watching it this morning, just breaking once more. Yeah, for sure. When we first watched this episode together, I was like in tears and then I was in tears again. And I was like, I can't do this. Yeah. So, uh... Should we just do this episode? Let's just do it. I can't look. <laughs> I know I'm probably going to cry. I can't do the. I can't do a preamble. Let's just get to the tears, you know. Mm-hmm. Let's get straight in there. Well, who do we want to talk about first? Because we have a lot of a lot of big shit happens in this episode. I think we should probably leave the separation until last. I think. We should leave the separation till second to last and talk about something really nice at the very end. So I want to save Mary and the Malefa for last. Okay, Because fair. that's nice and I don't want to leave the episode crying. <laughs> okay, cool. Well, shall we start with Mrs. Coulter and the Magisterium? Yes. Yes. God, there's so much going on here. There's so much horrendousness in this episode. There's a lot of horrificness. We don't get Asriel at all this episode or any of like Asriel, Asriel's Republic or anything like that. It's all in the heart of the Magisterium. We're picking up with the chapter that we just finished reading in the books in our last book episode, Mrs. Coulter in Geneva. There is a good amount of Mrs. Coulter stomping on the egos of priests, but there is also a big honking spoonful of misogyny to p- plough through Ugh. as well. So, oh my God, yeah. It's like equal measure. And I think they've definitely, the misogyny of it, they've definitely hammed it up than what it was in the books, like massively, because it's there in the books. Obviously, we pointed it out, but they have gone for it in this. And I think they've gone for it in a way. And obviously, we haven't gone past that chapter, so I'm actually not really sure what happens next in terms of what they do with Coulter and stuff. But they have deliberately decided to take away some of Coulter's power here. It's just fucking grim in it. Literally, like, silencing her with a fucking man's hand and, like, F- MacPhail saying some fucking horrific shit to her. It's just oh my God. awful. So many choice lines from him that are painful to hear. I think that's the thing. This this episode it is a heavy episode all round with everything that happens. And, yeah, the brief moments of 
levity that we do get are entirely from Mrs. Coulter delivering zingers. So most of my notes on her scenes are just her zingers and I'm here for it. For sure. Before we get into the zingers, I feel, because I have so many notes on this as well, she does provide the comic relief this episode and she's never done that before. She's never been like a comedic character, but yeah, here she is just absolutely bursting priests. I love that for her. The moment she like lands in the magisterium and strides in, she's like, tell the cardinal that Mrs. Coulter is back. And it's like, it's like, that's when the music should start. And there should be like a big Mrs. Coulter number. It's great. (laughs) 100%. So I guess because we were talking about the horrible McPhail bit, let's just get that out of the way. There's like some lines here that I just truly fucking hate. I like the bit where she like, I guess makes him stumble a little bit where she keeps calling him Hugh and he's like Hugh? anytime Who she calls Hugh? him Hugh she's like it's me Hugh <laughs> and then no because she's roasting like Gomez the whole time when she first comes in and she's like roasting Gomez too because she's just like he tries to let her in through the door and she's like no no after you and then she looks at Hugh she looks Hugh dead in the eye and says uh, is the boy staying yes just putting everyone in their place <laughs> <laughs> yeah, she's they've given, and I totally get why, because what's the point in bringing in another character for just like these few uh, Poor things? Brother Louis. Gomez. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> brother Louis Gomez, which is interesting. It's such an interesting choice for his character because it gives us another dimension to Gomez because like you were saying, so far we've only seen like one side of him. He's like stoic. He always thinks that he's in control of the situation. You've never, you, we've seen a bit of him like fucking you know, like, oh my God, I love God so much. I'm going to go in a fucking hallway and bite my knuckle for some reason. But in terms of like, we've not seen him, anyone like belittle him yet. And he's getting definitely getting belittled by by Hugh and by Coulter. Mm-hmm. Yeah, there's a definite looks that he's getting of like, uh, how much do I respect these people? Because his religious like zealotness is not going down. Like his faith is very much still intact, but his respect for... um speaking of failure, Father President McPhail is potentially plummeting just by witnessing the way that Mrs. Coulter is talking to him, which is excellent. There is no way that he has not got his ear pinned to that door when Mrs. Coulter and Father McPhail are like having their little shout off where he won't let her get a word in edgewise and I hate it when he's speaking over her and they're just both talk. It's the perfect level of like frustrating conversation to watch. For sure. That whole interaction is great and again, it's great to see Will Keane have his Mrs. Coulter scene just like everybody else. Um, yes. So, and it, Ruth is fucking phenomenal in this episode. And there's so much, there's so much between them. And I think one of the things that's really interesting is that they try and play some like sexual tension between them. And it's really gross because it's obviously only one sided. I think they were trying to contrast it with the very obvious and natural sexual tension between Azriel and Coulter that we got in the last episode. And we're getting this sexual tension between the two of them, which is clearly one-sided from Hugh. And it's not, it's being reciprocated by Coulter because she wants to get what she wants from it. But then also he's clearly deeply uncomfortable around her generally. And like the way when she's like, uh, what's the line? She's like, your abstinence is admirable. And like, it's like, oof. (laughs) So the thing here is, and I saw someone say it in the Discord, I think, and... I didn't read it like this until I watched this episode again. She says, she's talking about Cardinal Sturrock, and she says, he could never resist temptation, but your abstinence is magnificent. What is that implying that happened between her and Cardinal Sturrock? Did something happen between them? I 
don't want to think that. No, neither do um, I. I don't. I don't think she would go there. I think she just had him like begging for it, but I don't think she'd yes. ever give him anything. Yeah. That's what I think. I don't. I don't think she would. No, um, I don't. I agree. And with I that. do think she is perhaps implying that he abused his power in that way more so than MacPhail, who is so tightly wound that he I don't think he does like I think all of his sexual tension all of his sexual frustration is taken out on on himself and not on other people whereas there is implications that the other priests are like corrupt in in an out more outward facing way when her and Gomez are on the other side of the door when she's like banging on the door I love it when she's like it's me Hugh (laughs) it's It's me me. Hugh And like her asking him if he's still hurting himself and he's like visibly shaken about Ooh, that. Yes. Such great face acting from Will Keane there. Just like the like the little can't believe you said that out loud. And she's like, I fucking know I said that out loud. But how ridiculous is that? When he asks um about if she's on Asriel's side and she's like, Look at my clothes. Do I look like I'm on the side of a man who would give me this outfit? And I'm like, Are you shaming me? You look really hot. But anyway. For sure. <laughs> One thing about the outfit as well, I know we'll probably talk more about Mrs. Coulter's amazing purple dress. Um, one thing to note that I noted down about the change in outfits is that obviously she gets given that from her mother which we then don't really hear much else about it, but it's interesting, I guess, to hear a little bit about her mum in any way because we don't get that in the books. She wears this, like, killer purple dress with these heels that we heard Ruth talk about at the premiere, which was, like, her favourite outfit this season. And it feels like we've got the old Mrs. Coulter back. She's, like, storming through the halls. There's lots Mm -hmm. of imagery and camera work. The first shot that you get when she's wearing that dress is her heel like stomping into the ground and you're like yes I'm here there's lots of camera work of her like throwing doors open which is like very uh, mirroring what she did in season one when she first came into Jordan College and it feels kind of jarring because it's kind of not the Mrs. Coulter that we know anymore but it's also funny because she has some great lines but then what I wanted to bring up about the changing outfit is that when she decides to, you know, try and escape with Rook and she's running and she gets caught, she's back in her Asriel outfit. And I feel like that highlights just how much she has changed. Like she's chosen to not wear these killer outfits that she would always wear that was part of such a big part of her personality, her like attribution of power and all that kind of stuff. And now she's actually chosen to get back into these like fucking prison clothes which she makes look amazing but yeah I feel like it definitely highlights her a change in her for sure Mm -hmm. it's like she had to put on her magisterium her like old magisterium outfits in order to get back her attitude and the audacity she wielded to like get those doors opened by those nervous sexually frustrated men yeah the power shoulder everything is so great I love when she's walking around the rooms and she's trying to get in and she's like oh what's I I simply must pray and the priest (laughs) is just like you must pray at the allotted time she's like no no I just go where God calls me to his house it's just so great she's saying all the right stuff but you can hear that she just doesn't mean a word of it and when she opens that room to the priests that are all like (laughs) kneeling around the like stone pillar thing and she's just like well this is boring closes the door and goes for the next one and when he's like she's like what are you gonna do call it like i think he says i'll call for support or something and she taps him on the shoulder and goes we all need support we all need support (laughs) it's so great it's so good it's amazing good i also love her being like i have no need of breakfast same i never eat breakfast (laughs) i love breakfast colter (laughs) we disagree there (laughs) so if we go back to 
just I know we don't want to talk about it, but the horrible shit with her and MacPhail at the end. It's a really visceral depiction of misogyny and it made me feel it physically. Like I, I hated it, truly fucking hated it. And I see why they did it and it's objectively great, but I hate the way it made me feel. And I know that's exactly how they wanted me to feel. Mm -hmm. Like he has some horrendous lines. They cover her mouth and he's like, this is what you really are. An incoherent, emotional woman. I'll give your beauty what it's always lacked, Grace. And then he like, like kisses her on the forehead. Yeah. That Grace as well is such a pointed word for her because we see in the scene with the um, with the chest when she's opening the chest of clothes that are sent by her mother she's like says something about her mother like she always had grace that's like something she always had and like that's really like poignant there and I do think it is just like it really shows that power imbalance because Mrs Coulter is coming into the magisterium from a place of she had to fight to get what power she had there that has now been taken away from her pretty much she's there very much trying her trying her best to play a game but she doesn't have any real power any power she's getting is purely through zingers and like bluffing it basically and then she's been prodding this powerful man who has all this power that is just given to him for basically nothing well because she helped him and she's prodding and prodding and prodding and trying to one-up him and then you just realize that it's all taken out from underneath her and you realize that she didn't have that power and that his response to her is saying everything that he feels is as hurtful as what she said to him but it's coming from such a place of like that power imbalance it just feels so gross yeah for sure and i think that coulter is so good at picking up exactly what you've just said about her like picking up on i guess all of hugh's insecurities hence her calling him hugh she does the exact same thing to gomez when she's trying to avoid getting captured she's she points him and says exactly what you said earlier of like oh, I see what it is. Like, you just want power. And then you kind of see it in Gomez's face because I honestly truly believe that, like you said, Gomez is like, I don't care about this power shit. I actually am. He just fucking loves the authority. Just do you know what I mean? fanatically just... religious, yeah. Yeah, 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 for sure. Um, And also I'm kind of sad in a way that we don't get... We obviously get some amazing lines from Coulter, like Perkin, Hugh. I really miss the whole thing where she's talking about from the book, the authority and like, oh, wouldn't it just be like, we should just kill him. Like, cause he's just like a pitiful mess. What if he's just like this old pitiful thing? Like, wouldn't it be better if we just killed him? And like her, like treading that line and it being like, oh, I, you know, in her brain, she's thinking like, oh, I know I might get killed for this, but I also can't help it. It's so like intoxicating talking in this way. And I kind of wish we'd got some lines like that. Yeah, we didn't get an epic blasphemy era Coulter moment um in the same way instead she opted for the blackmail and the mentioning that she'd uh that her and father mcphail had murdered sturrock which i guess it works as a chess move a bit but it, it's it's not quite as good as the blasphemy in the book <laughs> no no definitely not but i guess that had to come around because they did that in season one or two and for they did it for a reason so she was obviously going to have to blackmail him with it at some point yeah one thing we did with, with Coulter in her epic power shoulder dress is when she breaks into the lab and is uh, having that conversation with Dr. Cooper, who, unlike in the books, she does remember. She does. She, she does, does remember, remember Coops. Yeah, she does. <laughs> um, but she does this thing that I was like, 
because I'm so here for Mrs. Coulter this episode mostly, and we know she's atrocious, but she does she does like one thing that just makes me feel really skin crawly and uncomfortable when she first talks to Dr. Cooper, where she just like without any permission or anything, just like raises Cooper's collar and like looks at her burns in a way that is so humiliating and like a, like a real boundary cross that I was like, oh, Mrs. Coulter, that's definitely you channeling the old you in a way that I hate. Yeah, it made me think of when she tortured the witch, just like the like humiliation of it, even though she doesn't go that far with Dr. Cooper, but it's still that kind of vibe, that degradation of somebody. Yeah, just making someone feel small. Yes, yeah, 100%. My note here... <laughs> I've got a, a, a few notes on Dr. Cooper, but one of them is that, my God, she goes down like a sack of shit when she's stung by Rook. She it's hits such the a good fall. So hard. <laughs> so hard. Yeah. It's a full, like, timber moment. Like, fully, like a like a noble pine, she just drops. Yeah, she <laughs> and does. And I love how they can tell you if someone's dead or unconscious in this series by just showing you their demon. And if they've disappeared, they're dead. But if they're here... They're just unconscious. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, yeah, for sure. I, apart from obviously the bit with the like degradation that we mentioned of Dr. Cooper, Mrs. Coulter is really good in this scene. I think it really shows her intelligence. Like she like goes through this process of like working out what this contraption is and what it does. And also it helps us with what it is and what it does. I can't remember at this point whether we've already had it kind of explained by McPhail. Dr. Cooper does an okay job of describing how it works to McPhail. And I was going to say this because there is such a sci-fi element to the fantasy in this series. And whoever well we know that jack thorne wrote this episode so jack has done a really good job here of like pulmonifying the science that they've got going on here because we know philip kind of describes it in the books as like it's how the hairs want to be whole and there's like an ambaric pulse that runs through like runs through everybody that connects them and stuff and i i just love the way that it was described in that way from Dr. Cooper to McPhail. And then that Mrs. Coulter goes through that process of elimination and works it out. And that line that she has where she's like, Dr. Cooper, are you building a bomb? It's so <laughs> and great. Cooper's just like, maybe. <laughs> maybe. It's so be- great. <laughs> it is really good. It's really good. And I love it when she, obviously I don't like to see her get captured, but when she gets captured and she's like, oh, <laughs> oop, <laughs> oop. She's like, yes. they're here for me, not for you, but you already knew that. Oh, she's just got some fucking Such great styles. Lines. Yeah. She really styles it out. It's great. When, when Gomez shows up and she's like, <laughs> you caught me. <laughs> oh, God. Yeah. It's um because she has so many like great zingers and powerful moments in this episode. It is very jarring and upsetting when all that stuff happens at the end and we see her in the cell at the end and we see that it's Gomez that's the one closing the door and then we see the monkey in the cage. Oh, LMP Uh, in the cage. Yeah, and it's just horrible. And the whole bit about, you know, like, Rook proper, like, rubs it in when he's like, you came here to kill them, but what you've done is actually give them the fuse to to a bomb to kill Lyra. I'm like, Rook, she don't need to fucking hear that right now. She knows. She knows that she's done a fucking bad here. And she even calls herself arrogant, doesn't she? She's like, it's arrogance. I thought, basically, I thought that I could just come here and kill him. Yeah. You get to see Rook waver on Asriel a bit in this episode as well, because he's like, "We we we can get the intention craft and we can go to Asriel now and he'll save Lyra. And Colt is like... Will he? He's like, he might. Mm, yeah, 
you don't you don't have any faith that that man will try to rescue his own daughter from this bomb so no yeah exactly is there anything else to say about Coulter and the magisterium and everything that's going on oh actually one thing that i did want to bring up is that they rely on fra parvel here to uh tell them that mrs Coulter has the hair in the locket even though we see her hold it and mcphail look at it when they're having their interaction they don't do the like fucking sherlock thing that they do in the books where mcphail's like oh i saw her like touch the locket so i'm like what the fuck did gomez do to fra parvel to make him read that alethiometer so quick so quick maybe they um because they said something about how they knew she'd come back and she was supposed to come back and they had been working on the bomb. So I wonder if if she hadn't come back around the same time as the bomb being finished, just by coincidence, they would have sent someone out to look for her or something to find her. If they, they like already knew it was there before she got here. Yeah. So anything else about Mrs. Coulter and the Madge before we move on? Um, I hate it when she kissed the ring. I hated it even more when he kissed her on the forehead. That's that's that. Those are my two notes that I haven't said yet. Just ab. Absolutely not. Also, Ruth Wilson can look me in the eye straight down the camera and say destruction Ooh. anytime she likes. Absolutely. <laughs> Absolutely. Yes. <sighs> so shall we move on? Because I don't know how you did your notes, but I've kind of separated mine because there's so much that happens with like Will, Lyra and Pan in this episode. I separated mine into them in the suburbs of the dead and then the separation. Oof. Okay. Yeah. Do you want yeah. to talk about them in the suburbs of the dead first? Sure. So I want to talk about Pan in this bit in particular because they have purposely made him tiny, 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 tiny. And I swear he's smaller in his ermine form here than he's ever been before. Or they've definitely made him look he's it. so wee. He's so, and his little nose is so pink it hurts. Yep. So small, so sad so upset his little eyes they're so big and so black and so round and so full of tears yep yeah just just pan it's just awful though as they're like just the very first scene we get with them as they're walking down the road and they start to see people and follow them it's the first bit we get there was maybe a, a tiny bit of it last episode of lyra just being quite dismissive of pan throughout this this section and pan is crying and lyra's just telling him to stop and it's just like and then Will seems to care more about if Pan's okay than Lyra does because he's like is he okay he doesn't seem okay and Lyra's like he's fine but because Lyra and Pan are one person Pan is literally just all of Lyra's doubt in one bundle and she's having to fight her own doubt which means she's having to fight Pan and I don't like seeing her being dismissive of him no me too it's it's a really really I don't want to say harsh but it is quite a harsh decision from the writers to make this the last like interactions with Lyra and, and Pan that we get to be so brutal. And I think that it's an in a way, like it is horrible and I don't want them to be mad at each other, but in a way it does show like Will's caring for like Lyra's soul. Uh, which is yeah. nice. Yeah. He's the one that is like concerned and is giving time to that part of Lyra that's doubting and that part of Lyra that's scared. Will immediately wants to comfort that part of her. And that is nice. But also, how dare you make Lyra and Pan argue just before they get fucking ripped apart. It's horrendous. Absolutely not. Yeah, there's a few lines from the book that we're missing that are Lyra in defence of Pan and Lyra emphasising their connection that we don't get in the same way that 
I don't know if it takes away from the heartbreak or if it adds to the heartbreak. Um, it's, you've basically seen the same scene played out in two, two very different ways in the book and in the series. So Yeah. Uh, I like how when they're walking through the like vast set for the suburbs of the dead will's like it feels like we're in a horror film and lyra says why would you want to watch a film that makes you feel horrible and then she's like i liked the film with the bear yeah (laughs) and then we all get to go and watch paddington again (laughs) yeah so great i love that i like the set is very and the theming of the suburbs of the dead is very different to how i pictured in the book the like warehouse vibes are very they make me think of the video game little nightmares they've got so the same vibes as that and then like it's like little nightmares and limbo got pushed together into one game almost um and they've really taken the like, little thread that phil puts in to the books where people are kind of finding comfort in creating a bureaucracy when there is no order and seemingly no structure and they've like hammed it all the way up to the nth degree and so instead of getting these little like shack houses that people have built in and that they're living in with their deaths we get these waiting rooms um and this whole like system of like them being told it's almost like i'm trying to think of the playwright that really loves a bit of bureaucracy and they ham it up in different things and like they have these kinds of scenes in so many films it's become like a bit of a trope now of like where somebody's going to like from like room to room to room being given pieces of paper and being told, no, you need to go to room J03. No, now you need to go to X27. And like, you know, there's scenes like that in Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy. Weirdly, in Jupiter Ascending, there's a random bureaucracy scene. <laughs> that classic, absolute staple of cinema starring Mila <laughs> Kunis and Channing Tatum. Um, and there's loads of them, but there's quite a lot of films that do that. There's like a really long thing in... I think one of the asterisk and obelix movies. But yeah, that kind of theme of like going around the bureaucracy is kind of there to add some humour, but it also doesn't because the whole thing is so eerie. It's also brutal. So in the book, like you said, they have families, they live in like, yeah, okay, they don't live in the most amazing of circumstances, but they still, they make food. They have have somewhere to live, I guess, while they're waiting. They have like family and all that kind of stuff. Here, they're just sat in a waiting room. And how long are they going to be sat in that waiting room? It's fucking brutal. The only person that we hear speak with any kind of life in them is the guy that is kind of creepy to Lyra. When her line is like, oh, you seem relatively friendly or something. It's like, does he? He seems like a creepy guy that shouted at you from an alleyway to me. But (laughs) And then he turns out to be all right. So we have like Pan and Will trying to convince Lyra not to invite her death when we learn about death. Will and Pan are like, you know, in cahoots, I guess, agreeing with each other again. We have Lyra say to Pan, you are on my side. And then Pan says, I thought I was by your side. Oh, that line. Yeah. It hurts. Mm -hmm. It does. It's good because it hurts. (laughs) Daphne has some good moments in this episode. This, I think this is a good one where she's like mad at them both for not realising how much Roger meant to her and that she keeps having to explain it to them like she does have some good acting moments in this episode um also we do see just like a quick sidebar because it'll be relevant later on in the series we do see her spinning some yarns to the guy that's in the tower that's like shouting at them when they first walk in and the line that she gives is the same as in the book she says that they were being chased and in the books they actually are being chased and so that's kind of nice and yeah when then she's like 
He's like, first you're being chased and then you want to find your friends. Tell the truth. It's like, ho, ho, ho. So what do we think about Lyra's death? Very different. Very different. Very... She's given secretary. She's given secretary, but also she's given like kind of hot goth energy. Yes, yes, <laughs> yes, yes, yes. Like, yeah. No, I'm, I'm here for her. I love how her and uh, Lyra have the exact same hairstyle. I wonder if she always copies Lyra's hairstyles. Yes. What about when Will does Lyra's hair? <laughs> <laughs> well, exactly. Maybe that's why she knows Will so well, because she does kind of look at him like, I know you. You're the one that does the hair. <laughs> it's interesting that Lyra doesn't say all the stuff about Pan being her lifelong companion, not death. We yeah. don't get that back and forth. We get Pan being really upset here, but we don't get the whole Lyra being like, you're not my companion. Pan's my companion. Um, we don't get any of that at all. Yeah. When she says that, it's just Pan looking really sad and going, that's not true. And it's just like, no, Lyra's supposed to jump to your defense and say no, because she always refers to Pan as her, like her dear heart and her in the books, her dear heart, her everything, her soul. And so not having that adamant energy from Lyra that Pan is her everything is like really heartbreaking. It's like she's just like, I get it. But it's kind of I completely understand. And you can sometimes see it in Daphne's performance. You can sometimes see behind like in her eyes, like that she is regretting being mean to Pan, but she's also kind of doing it to push him away. Cause I think she suspects. I think she suspects that something is gonna happen. Pan's pointing it all out, saying nobody here has demons. Even the people that sh- that that should have them. should have them. Yeah. And Lyra's brushing it off, but she's definitely in denial and she's definitely being mean to Pan to make it easier. And I hate it. I really like the camera angles and the cuts in the scene with Lyra and her death. Like she's always she seems she's like sat behind her at one minute, then she stood up and Lyra can never quite place where she is. Um I think they filmed that really well. And yeah, I do like I like that they made Lyra's death a woman, because obviously in the books it's a man and not a pan's already male i guess so it's nice for lyra to have her a lifelong companion that is like a female i guess like not that gender really matters that much but i do like that they made her a woman and in the books the death doesn't get to actually say very much so it's really nice to have those lines of it especially considering that your death is supposed to be quite a comforting presence it's really nice to have those lines delivered from someone that has like big sister energy it's not motherly but it is very i've got your back kind of vibes that you would get from probably an older sister and yeah i i don't know i can't, i love that i love the way that the death is done and yeah the way she flits around and can't can't be seen by other people which means that when she's that that scene when she's opening the doors finally and they like have to step through the doors to the dog will's just looking at doors that opened by magic which yeah, is great yeah. well will's <laughs> seen weirder things at this point so that is true um, yeah. I just before they go, I enjoy Will's line of "You take me to the best places." You know that yeah. that's really cute, really because he has been. I feel like that's his final bit of like encouragement, isn't it? Because he's been quite. He's been given all of the doubtful lines that Tally and Sally had in the book, and now we don't have Tally and Sally. We don't have that little glimmer of light and like the brightness of the dragonflies that we love so much in the books. But we've got Will and Pan kind of being those voices of doubt for Lyra. And it's quite good for us as an audience, especially for anyone that hasn't read the books, because Lyra's decision does feel like it comes out of the blue. So hearing her justify it to Will 
does help us as an audience get why this random decision has been made because otherwise it probably does feel like quite a random jump and i like that yes no me too and i love that they give will and lyra or like they give will the the line of what if we don't come back and then lyra says well we will have died doing something important and then here we are we're at the dock. Do we have to be? No, oh, God, no, no. Let's just end it here. Let's talk about the Malefa. <laughs> yeah. Lyra has a great line that I do want to mention. I don't know if it's in the dock scene. I think it might be before. But yeah, she says something about how she doesn't want to be impressive. She doesn't want to be exceptional. Her mum and her dad want to be exceptional and she doesn't. She just wants to do something kind. She just wants to do the right thing and do something kind for one person. And she doesn't need to be exceptional. She doesn't need to change the world. Little does she know she's gonna. But, <laughs> and I like that that's where it's coming from. It's I just want to do one kind thing for one person that meant something to me. It reminds me of something that she said in the last episode, which I meant to bring up, but I don't think I did. But I think it was in my notes. I can't remember who she's talking to. She's talking to Yorick, I think. And she says, um she's talking about him doubting and she's like it's the people that care that doubt that it's the most like horrible people in the world that don't doubt like my mother and father so like it's a similar similar vibe we keep getting these like little comparisons to her mum and dad she's obviously thinking about them a lot more because obviously she was with mrs coulter for ages and asriel keeps being brought up again and again and again Mm -hmm. it's got to be traumatic for her who has number one much more added trauma now with her mum and with her dad obviously there's a lot of deep deep seated trauma there from his terrible treatment of her and him her thinking that he was her uncle all her life yeah that complete like one 360 180 flip whatever they did in the end of that first season when she realizes not that she's your mother lyra but (laughs) he's your father lyra (laughs) moment that just shatters everything for her and I think that's where because initially especially in the books as well she's so proud to find out that he wasn't her uncle he's her dad this whole time and now she's viewing her mum and her dad as like the worst people in the world because of how shit they've treated her and it's like oh Lyra girl get some therapy for sure you're gonna need it that conversation she had with her death is like the closest she's been to therapy this entire series yeah 100% (laughs) so Keith Gary Burtman's here Mm. Here Keith Gary Boatman He's here and he's got a cough. Just like me. Yeah. <laughs> and me. <laughs> we, so the person that plays Keith Gary Burtman does a great job. I think I said this when we first watched it. He definitely feels like he came from a theatre background. He's very like big with his actions, I guess, and the way that he acts. He's very kind at first and then he kind of gets annoyed when Will pull, pulls a knife on him, which is fair. That's when he gets his like proper theatrical boatman speech and I'm really here for that. He re- You can feel the actor enjoying delivering that. It's so great. <laughs> yeah, for sure. When he points at Pan, it makes me want to die. <sighs> and his little pink nose. Mm-hmm. It's just all you can see is just the big, the big black eyes and the little pink nose and you're like, no, don't tell him he's not fit for travel. Yeah. Oh... <laughs> And also, we learn here, so we get the whole, like, Pan can't come on the boat, Lyra runs on, tries to... She's like, he fits everywhere! And then she tries to pull the lever, and it's like, that's, that's like, the old Lyra coming through as well. That's the little bit of fight that I wanted to see the whole way through that we get from Lyra, and then... And then this is where we learn that Will also has to leave a part of himself behind. And we do have a clip of Amir talking about that scene and him separating from his own demon so we can play that here it was it was cool i mean there was um i think will had kind of 
they tell, there's a there's a nice moment in the in the in the series um which you guys will see obviously but it's like we're kind of didn't know how much he believed this whole demon thing right it's like lyra says he has a demon and everyone has a demon but i think it's kind of like that's your world i'm from a different world we, we definitely don't have demons yeah. and i think in that jetty when they're taken to the land of the dead will does feel something kind of be removed from him and obviously that is his soul that's part of his soul um so being able to play with that was cool i think that was obviously the moment where will realizes oh wow i um there is I was not wrong, you know. There's, there's, a, there is a part of me, and there's um, a part of everyone that's kind of in there. There's you, but also a bit separate to you. Um, and being able to play with that was was cool. Obviously, it doesn't affect Will in the same way it affected Lyra, and it's less painful for him, definitely, by a huge, by a huge margin. Um, but filming those scenes were fun because they, they, they touch on that moment, and Will just basically say to Lyra, "It's like I really do have a demon type of yeah. thing." Yeah. Ooh, a clip. <laughs> a clip. <laughs> right. Hmm. We have to talk. We have to talk about the sad bit. The, I... Just number one, the framing of it is so perfect with Daphne like crouching next to the the bench that that Pan is on. Uh, that framing is really beautiful. It means it makes for like a really great eye contact between them. The fact that she's not holding him to have this conversation, but they're on the same eye level. Is very important uh, for the heartbreak, um, and I hate it. Thank you. <laughs> no, same. Um, and I, so okay. What I think we should do is we also have a clip of Jack Thorne talking about the separation scene. So I think we should play that mm-hmm. now, mm-hmm. and then we can talk about what we think about the scene <laughs> emotionally. That we we all know what's coming in terms of Lyra and Pan. Yes. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and that scene was the scene I was most excited to write, mm-hmm. right from the start of the whole show. And writing it and rewriting it and reworking it for all the different decisions we made through the production process, that was the scene that I looked to protect in every way I could, but also made me think the most. You know, like, you know, I was constantly working out different ways to make that dynamic work. And even even in post, we were we were finding new ways of making it work. And right to the end, uh, Jane changed something really vital with where Pan looked and uh, and um, and all that stuff. Um, uh, uh, yeah. So that scene. Yes. Thanks, Jack. Thanks for breaking our hearts. <laughs> yes. I wish we'd have seen this scene when Jack was talking about it to us because I really wanted to ask him, I wonder why did they choose to have Lyra and Pan argue at the end rather than have Pan be brave? Because I don't know. I think we discussed this when we first watched it. Like, I don't know what is more heartbreaking. For me, I think it's it would be viscerally more heartbreaking for Pan to be a big, brave boy at the end. But this is also heartbreaking in a different way, I guess, because it's like fracturing their relationship even more than it's already about to be physically fractured. Yeah, it's like we've been given the two versions that we could have had, and I, I had a, we've had our hearts broken in two different flavors. Yeah, um, true. And yeah, I, I don't know how I feel about it because it is so heartbreaking to watch. It is heartbreakingly delivered. Pan has some really choice lines where he's like, you're choosing Roger over me. Roger's dead. I'm still alive. Kit Connor fucking smashes this scene. Like, yeah. He is so good as Pan. When he says, like, where will I go? And she says, I love you. And he says, just go. Like, oh, uh, it's just awful. And it is 
such a betrayal and the scene does feel like a betrayal and we know in the books that this is the betrayal she was destined for and so maybe this scene does feel more like she's betraying him because it's ending on that bitter note as opposed to ending on him being a big brave boy (laughs) i just i can't the little noise that he makes when he runs to the edge of the dock and it just it just it breaks me um i think they did a really clever thing by choosing to make him an ermine a lot of the way through because they know that i think I think they know that's one of his most iconic forms throughout the series so far and that is so small and so cute and so heartbreaking and similar to the sad little dog that we get in the books that then when they choose to put him in his final form which is the pine martin that that feels really important that that's what he's in when they separate um also because pine martins they have such long necks so he can lean so far out over that edge he's such a long boy (laughs) it's such a long boy i it kind of gives the impression of like i agree i think it's it was a really obviously i would have been even more devastated to see the sad little puppy but i think it's a really clever decision like you said because we know that like demons settle when you hit puberty but it kind of gives the impression that this like trauma in their life helped him to settle that way if that makes sense i mean maybe help is the wrong word but the trauma like shook him into settling in a little bit earlier than maybe he would have before like it forced them both to grow up yeah they both grew up really fast in in this like moment in this scene it's heartbreaking daphne does a really good guttural scream she does she's fucking screaming this season and she's doing a great job of, of so screaming. Much screaming she must have have a vocal coach that stops her from damaging her voice when she does that surely also she does not start herself some kind of thrash metal band at some point i'll be so disappointed <laughs> and if some fan does not make all of daphne's screams into a compilation to some thrash metal i will be very disappointed as yes. well <laughs> Yes, yes. It is a very horrible scene. The fact that we end on little Pan just on the edge of the jetty. Rude. 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 Very rude. Mm-mm. Mm-mm. I can't. It's too mm. rude. Yeah, it is so heartbreaking. It is so well written in the books. And this is such a different take on that scene that's so well done. And I know that you potentially wanted to mention something that might be spoilery for the secret commonwealth so if we want to tell people that haven't read the secret commonwealth to skip ahead about two to three minutes then you can say that now <laughs> yes. so i actually think it was you that brought this up when we were watching it the choice to have them already be angry at each other have that fractured relationship before they even actually separate i wonder if the team made that decision seeing how pan and lyra are in the secret commonwealth because in the secret commonwealth they have a very fractured relationship and it's very obvious and they are actually not together for most of that book but when they are they're always at each other's throats they're always thinking different things they they hold almost even hold different beliefs now since they separated and i wonder whether they just wanted to call forward to that a little bit now we have that text to call forward to i guess yeah and i I think if pan was a big brave boy and then down the line turned around to lyra and said you fucking broke me you left me and i felt so betrayed 
her response could be, but that was a decision we made together and you were a big, brave boy. But because he's not been a big, brave boy, he has been genuinely hurt, heartbroken and betrayed. The fact that down the line he chooses to leave her on the docks of life um, <laughs> is maybe something that is quite relevant. And we know that Jane's a big advocate for not, um, for wanting the entire story before they make any like adaptations decisions whenever anybody's asked her about adapting the books of dust she's always said that she'd love to do it but she wants the whole story first and i think this is part of the reason for that even though they're two separate trilogies she wants to always have that foresight into what the end of the story is going to be and i think this is a perfect example of that i guess um to be able to do stuff like that to know that that's where the narrative goes and to be able to draw it in earlier just like they did with will in season one <laughs> thanks thanks Thank so much for that if philip if you could just hurry up and write the last book that would be great and then jane can decide whether or not to adapt it that would be great <laughs> okay all right it's a safe zone now you're safe we're, we're gonna we're gonna stop talking about that and start talking about something to cheer us the fuck up and that is mary malone oh my god yeah. so first of all it is the first time we've ever seen her distressed and I don't like it. No, she's knackered. Mm. She's mm-hmm. so knackered. She's finished her water. Yeah. She's been trekking. Mm-hmm. She's got no more trek left in her. No. And she's she's just done the sticks aren't helping. And so she takes a little nap. And just like I would like to be welcomed awake from all naps in future, she wakes up to a little drink and a little snacky. She does. And she does the exact same thing that she does in the books, which is immediately eat and drink it without thinking about whether it could be like fucking poison or something. Yeah, And with it, she <laughs> makes very intense eye contact with something. That goes... <laughs> Amazing. There you go. That was my... I assume it's Atal. That was my Atal yeah. impression. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and yeah, we get our first ever glimpse of a Maletha. And it's not much. We don't get much. We don't get merch and we don't get wheels. We don't get wheels. And I know a lot of people would have very strong opinions about the shape and that she that it is not a diamond. However, I do really love the design. I think the face is really gorgeous and, and they've done a really good job of doing like an intelligent face. Um, and I love the little pops of blue that just give it that like slightly alien vibes. Um, I love because it's blue rare markings. that you see furred creatures with blue on them. Like you can get it in birds, but we don't get it in mammals. So it's quite nice to see that that adds that bit of alien otherworldliness to them. Yeah, I think they've done a really, really good job with the Malefa. I think that if they'd have stayed true to the books, it would have just it wouldn't be appealing to look at. And we know that Mary and Atal have a really special connection and we need to be able to feel that. And if they looked so alien to us, we wouldn't be able to feel that. We need to be able to relate to them in some way, to like compare them. Like like we're humans, we we compare all the time. Like to make sure they have this relationship that we can feel, we need to be able to compare them to like some other animal or have a little bit of a human look in, in her eyes or something like that. And I think that if they'd have given them like the diamond shape, it just would have thrown us all off. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I we know that they had a conversation about wheels and that was the one thing that Phil wouldn't budge on so I am certain that we will see wheels next episode uh, or the one after that <laughs> we have a clip from Dan talking about that so I won't play it now but we'll play it in the next episode or when, whenever we see the, the seed pod wheels uh, but we do have a clip from Jane talking about the Malefa and just how she was terrified of, uh, of 
the concept of the Malefa. So we can play that now. Yeah. That was, that was, I mean, that was a real, um, you know, it takes a village effort. So the Malefa, the design of the Malefa was the genius of Joel Collins. Um, and that came out quite sweet. You know, it was always, I remember someone at the screening of um, uh, episode one, season one, asking me what I've been frightened of, you know, during or what had scared me or whatever during the making of season one. And I said nothing because every time I feel fear, I think about the Mulefa <laughs> and then I know what terror is. <laughs> and, um, and, and I think we all talked about it so much and were so anxious about it. And I think Joel had really been thinking about it and we knew what we didn't want. And then he, he just kind of drew it and it came out very, very sweetly. Um, and then Russell Dodgson brought it to life. And then we did two things. One, and, and this was where um, one of our producers, Stephen Harron, really helped us. We devised a, um, we knew we wanted Mary to learn Mielefa language rather than have the Mielefa try and learn English. It, you know, they're higher beings than us. And, and Mary is intellectually and curious and creatively curious in every way. So she would want to learn to speak. So we did some signing. You will see there's some signing with the trunks and there's some spoken word, which is the language that um, Stephen Harron worked with a language specialist to devise, which we thought the, the mulefa that Joel had designed would make these kind of noises. And that's the language that Mary learns. So it's part sign, part, part language. Um, and so it all came together like that. There was one main puppet, which was the Atal one which is a bit like working with Yorick, you know, it's a yes. kind of like someone with a really big sort of head on a stick. Um, and Simone, who had been for the entirety of the second season saying, but I don't get to work with a puppet, suddenly was kind of like, well, be careful what you wish for. You know, she's <laughs> yeah. everywhere she looks, it's just her and kind of like a, a puppet. But um, they were brilliant. So I'm excited for you to see them. Thanks, Jane. Thank you. <laughs> but yes, I am a huge fan of how the Malefa appear to us uh i am very much looking forward to like further episodes with them and getting to see like mary settling into their world and learning their language and things like that yeah simone does such a great job of that like shock immediately followed by curiosity and I love that. And I love when um, Atal starts to walk away to like lead the way somewhere and the way she scrambles to get all of her stuff together. And then there's an ominous focusing in shot on a, on a scrap of fabric she's left behind. And it's like, ooh, pop a pin in that. Well, I guess before we wrap up, is there anything that we've missed that you want to add? I think, I think we've got everything aside from the fact that I need to go and have a little cry. Yeah. Um, hopefully we've finished it on a happy note by leaving you thinking about Mary and the Malefa and not thinking about Sad little band. Bring it up again. <laughs> Mary and the Malefa. Just think about the Malefa and how excited you are to see that thing on wheels. <laughs> yes. I'm honestly surprised I did not cry during this episode. Well done, us. We didn't cry. I thought I would. Yeah. I feel like I mostly channeled my emotions into rage at the misogyny over tears of the separation. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. What is the next episode called? The next episode, I believe, is called No Way Out. No Way Out of War! <laughs> yeah, No Way Out. Just so anyone that's watching knows, the little fucking clip is a spoiler and a half. It's a right it? spoiler, isn't it? I did see that earlier when I was watching on iPlayer. The thumbnail for the episode's like, BTW, we got Lynn back. Yeah. <laughs> 
Right. Well, we'll look forward to reconvening. Is that the word? With Balloon Dad next episode? Yes, reconvening with Balloon Dad next episode. We're also really looking forward to, we have some interviews scheduled for the rest of this month and a bit of February, hopefully. So if you do have any uh, thoughts and questions that you think we might want to try and get answers to based on the episodes we've spoken about, you can definitely email those in uh, because we bloody love an email and we bloody love a question that we can pass on to the casting crew. Yes, absolutely please let us know. We're interviewing like a million people, I'm hoping to, so (laughs) we can probably get them covered. Thanks so much for listening to this episode of Her Dark Materials. You can find us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook at HDMPod. And you can email us at herdarkmaterialspod at gmail.com. You can also visit our website at hdmpod.co.uk. If you want to support us, you can become a patron at patreon.com forward slash hdmpod. We also have a shop where you can buy merch featuring all original artwork from Rich. You can find it at hdmpod.co.uk forward slash shop. I'm Faye, and when I'm not crying about Lyra and Pan, you can find me talking about Paramore on my other podcast, Still Into You. You can listen wherever you get your podcasts and find us on Twitter and Instagram at Still Into You Pod. I'm Rachel, and when I'm not here chatting to you lovely folks about my broken, broken heart, I'm making cute and magical arty things. You can find me over on Instagram at RachMakes, on Twitter and TikTok at Rach underscore makes, and over in my online shop, RachMakes.co.uk. A huge thanks as always to Johnny Knock for his musical stylings, and to Jane, Jack and Amir, who we heard from this episode. And we'll see you in a week's time, and don't forget, keep telling stories, and all will be well. Think of Mary and the Malefa. Yeah, don't cry. It's okay. Don't cry.